church, would you remain standing with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So the earliest words of Jesus recorded in all of scripture came when he was a boy of just 12 years old. Like any good Jewish couple, Mary and Joseph, they had taken their family to Jerusalem for the Passover. The caravan turned, and they headed back towards Nazareth, and it took some time before anybody realized that the oldest child had stayed behind. After three days, they found Jesus. He was seated in the temple, discussing the law of God with the teachers, and they exclaimed, why have you treated us like this? To which Jesus replied, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? This devotion, this devotion to the will and the work of God, it would continue throughout all of Jesus' earthly ministry. As a man, he would say, I've come from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Of course, Jesus is the son of God, the second member of the Holy Trinity. He had a fully divine will. The will of the father is the will of the son. But as a man, he also had a fully human will, a will which had to be submitted to that of God, refusing to exercise his own authority, refusing to work in his own power, relying wholly and completely at all times on the Holy Spirit. Perfect and absolute obedience, no matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice. The Son glorifying the Father by doing the work for which he had been called. Now, church, by God's perfect providence, he has brought us this Easter morning to yet another text where we see this perfect devotion of Jesus Christ to the work of the Father on full display. I know we just stood, but i got to ask you to stand again. In the reverence of the reading of God's word, I promise we're not becoming Catholic will be your last time to stand up. Mark 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what, was happening, what would happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, we desperately need to see the truth of your word. In a world where there are so many distractions, there's so much which seems so very real, clamoring for our attention, where our sin and selfishness and pride loom so large, 
What we need on this morning above all else is to see the glorious face of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to see your glory in his face, knowing that it is only there that we will be changed. It is only there that we will be driven to true repentance and faith. It is only there that salvation is found. And so, Father, we pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to behold the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So it's been several months now since Jesus and his followers left the region of Galilee and they headed south. We've talked about the reality that they are on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They've traveled south and now they're just north of the Dead Sea, the lowest place on all the earth, 1,400 feet below sea level. They've made a sharp westward turn. They've crossed the Jordan River. They're going to go into Jericho before heading on to Jerusalem. But the ascent will be steep. They're going to climb some 4,000 feet over a very short period of time. And because of this marked incline, because of the steepness of this journey, you are always said to be going up to Jerusalem. Whether you're headed south on a map, whether you're headed west, you're always said to be going up to Jerusalem. They were going along the road. They were going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed, they were afraid. Jesus was not staying back with the group. But of course, we know that what Jesus has called these men to do is to follow him. So it is not abnormal at all for Jesus to be the one physically leading the way. And yet there was something special on this day. There was something about Jesus walking ahead on this day that clearly stood out to the folks that were in that caravan. As a matter of fact, Mark tells us that they, I can only assume this means the 12, it says that they were amazed, but the rest, they were afraid. There would have been a large crowd with Jesus. There were always large crowds with Jesus. But you've got to remember that on this day, Jesus would lay down his life on the Passover. He was headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so there would have been many pilgrims making this very same journey. Any of these pilgrims that were heading from Galilee that didn't want to go through Samaria, that didn't want to engage with the Samaritans, those that they found unclean and filthy before God, they would have taken this very same route along the western side, excuse me, along the eastern side of the Jordan River. And so there would have been a larger than usual crowd walking along with Jesus. But whether those that were in this crowd, whether they were committed believers, whether they were casual observers, whether they were just folks coming to observe the Passover, surely every single one of them knew who it was that they traveled with. Word of Jesus Christ had traveled far and wide. He had done so many amazing works. He had taught with so much authority, raising even the dead. Just days before this morning's text, we're told that Jesus had raised a man from the dead, his friend who was called Lazarus, a man that had been dead for four days, Four days in the tomb. That's stinky dead. That's decaying dead. And yet with a word of command, Lazarus, come out. The man walked right out of the grave. News of something like this, it would have traveled. It would have traveled fast. Not only would news of what Jesus had done traveled fast, but news of the way it had been received by the religious leaders. They would have known about this as well. This seemed to have been the final straw. The scribes and the Pharisees, they had determined that Jesus must die. They determined that they were going to seek an opportunity to trap him in sin, to accuse him of a sin. And this was, at least in part, why Jesus had remained in Galilee. He had ensured that he would not be arrested, that he would not be tried, that he would be, not be killed one second sooner than the appointed time. But now he was traveling south. He had come into Judea, close to Jerusalem, close to the temple, near the religious center. And it was there that he had done this miraculous work with such a great audience these men couldn't let something like this slide. It would only cause their hatred for him to grow. He was too close. He was working too powerfully. And the crowd was growing with too much excitement. And so they must make their plans. 
They began making their plans for how they would entrap, how they would arrest, how they would take the life of Jesus Christ. Just looking for that opportunity to act. And you can feel this tension in the air. You can just feel the excitement in the air. This is the setting by which these men are traveling. And you know that Jesus was on everyone's mind. He was the question on everyone's lips. Could he really be the Christ? Could this really be the one that we have waited for for all our lives? And what would happen if the Sanhedrin saw their opening? As a matter of fact, we're told that in the temple complex, everyone was asking, what do you think? Will Jesus show up for the Passover feast? The religious leaders don't like a thing like this. They like all attention on them. They like all eyes on them. They want people coming to them to ask them questions about the law. They want people standing back in awe as they walk down the street at their outward religious holiness. They did not like the idea that everyone's minds, everyone's hearts, and everyone's lips were focused on Jesus Christ. They were traveling with this level of tension in the air. And they were amazed. They were amazed because Jesus was not shrinking back. He wasn't backpedaling. He wasn't hiding at all. He was marching, moving on with absolute determination. We read in Luke 9:51 that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. This idea of setting, it's a strengthening, an establishment. Some pastors have called it, Jesus has set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. There's no deterring. No one can grab his head and turn him any other direction. Jesus Christ has set and determined in his heart that he is going to march towards Jerusalem. This isn't an aimless journey. I believe there were probably times, of course, Jesus was always in control, but I do believe there were times when they went out for a walk, walking through the fields and plucking heads of grain. But this wasn't a stroll. This wasn't a meandering. This wasn't an aimless journey. Jesus knew where he was going, and he was forcing the issue. This drama which would unfold, this was all by the hands of the living God moving with determination towards his cross these men that had sought his life they weren't going to have to come find him they weren't going to have to come north into galilee jesus was marching straight towards them but the disciples they were amazed and the crowd they were afraid now we aren't told specifically what caused these men to shake in fear i have to imagine some of it was just the uncertainty of all that was unknown they had been wondering they'd seen riots before They had seen crowds break out. They had seen revolutions against the Romans. And so they had to have been concerned. Is some type of upheaval about to come? And then what will happen when the Romans arrive? What will happen when they squash this revolution, which is sure to boil up whenever this Jesus arrives? Surely this was causing great angst. Scripture tells us great fear in their heart. But again, Jesus was marching ahead. As they were behind him, having whatever discussions they were having, as they were behind him with the butterflies in the stomach and the anxiety in their heart, Jesus Christ was marching towards Jerusalem. He was marching towards the cross. He was marching towards his grave. Dear friends, you must have that picture in your mind this Easter Sunday morning. You must never think of your Lord as a cowering victim. There are liberals that will try to tell you, not talking about political liberals, I'm talking about theological liberals, that will tell you, That what happened was Jesus had sought to be a king of Israel and yet was rejected. That Jesus had sought to bring some type of military and political revolution and he died for his troubles. That Jesus had come into town and he had tried to place himself on the throne as the king of Israel and things just got away from him. Things just got out of hand. He didn't mean for all this to happen. He was just swept up up into chaos of all that happened. And in the end, he ended up dying, and it was all beyond his control. But, dear friends, you must see how often Jesus rejected exactly these types of opportunities. You must remember that after the feeding of the 5,000, when the crowd chased him around the Sea of Galilee, they came seeking to take him as the king by force. They wanted a, a military king. They wanted a political king. They wanted upheaval against Rome, and yet Jesus rejected it. That was not why he had come. 
This is why so many of the disciples had walked away sad. He was not the kind of king that they looked for. He was not the kind of Messiah that they sought. But you must know that Jesus did not come to raise a coup like this. Jesus Christ came for the express purpose of doing the work of his father and overcoming the works of the devil and setting a people free. And he would do it in a way that appeared to all the rest of the world as nothing short of weakness, nothing short of failure. He didn't come to build an army for himself. He didn't come to build a a kingdom, an earthly kingdom for himself. He didn't come to claim a land for himself. He didn't come to build a treasury for himself. He did the opposite of all those things. Whenever the crowd would seem to grow too large, he would say hard things like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they would leave. He talked about the fact that he didn't even have a place to lay his head. Whatever money the group had, he entrusted it to a thief. Don't you see? This is not the way that you build an earthly kingdom. This is not the way that you mount a military coup. Jesus Christ came to turn everything upside down, to win a kingdom the ways in ways that this world would never understand. And that's why he continually had to bring his followers to the deeper picture, the clearest sight of what he was doing. Because even for him, even for the anointed one, even for the Christ and the Messiah, this wouldn't be fun. He would go to the Father and say, Father, if there's another way to do this, let's do that. How about any other way in the entire universe, let's do that. And yet so committed to the work of his Father. So committed to submit his human will to the divine will of his father was he that he would continue to march on, leading the way ahead of the pack, knowing what awaited him. But you must understand on this Easter Sunday morning that the crowds were not in control. The religious leaders were not in control. The Romans were not in control. It was only by the sovereign hand of God that everything we know about this holy week came to pass. He was controlling every single movement. And yet every single sinful man would answer for every single word they uttered, every single thought they had, every single act that they carried out. But at all times, Jesus endured knowing what great joy awaited him. He says this, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Only Jesus Christ has the right to lay down his life. He has the authority, the power, the ability to raise it up again. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him again and again and again. Jesus was calling these men to himself, and he was trying to help them to understand. I don't know how many times he had these conversations. This is the third time that we read of it recorded. But he says here again, and I have to imagine it's like, again, he tells them. They continue to struggle with this idea that the kingdom of Israel is going to come today. They continue to believe that it was going to be by the sword that they were going to protect this Jesus, their Lord. And so again, he tells them what was going to happen. Again, he turns this thing upside down and he shows them everything that's going to come to pass. He does this in part to, ins- to instill up- in- uh, into them this, this sense of confidence in what happens as it happens. There, there should be this great sense, of, great sense of confidence, this great sense of safety that comes when the one that we trust... When the one that we follow looks at us and they tell us exactly how this thing is going to play out. Even if, bad, even if it's going to be bad. Even if it's going to be scary. If he can look you in the eye and say, this will be hard. But it's going to happen according to my father's perfect plan. So he shows them all that's going to happen so that they can understand. So that they can prepare their hearts. We know that they'll flee. We know that they'll run. We know that they'll deny. And yet he gives them every opportunity to show them. As the son of God. As the son of man filled with the spirit of God. He shows them the will of God in the days to come. He shows them exactly the way this thing is going to land. He says, 
Verse 33, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. We studied this handing over on Thursday night. We talked about the reality that they did not yet have any idea that it would be one of them. It would be one of the 12. It would be one of those that had slept and eaten and walked with Jesus Christ for all these years. It would be one of them that would betray him. Not just any of them, but one of the leaders. The one that had been entrusted as treasurer, given the purse for the group. The one that it seems was reclining at the left-hand side, a position of great honor at the Passover next to Jesus Christ. These men did not yet understand that it was Judas that would hand Jesus over. But what they did understand was that it, was to, it would be to the religious establishment that he was handed. The Sanhedrin was the supreme court of Israel. Seventy elders plus the chief priests. The chief priests coming by way of blood from the tribe of Levi, from the son of Aaron. The elders coming by way of religious knowledge. But you need to see this group. These who had ascended to religious power. Religious power which amounted at many times to political power because of their bloodlines and because of their religious exercise. Because of their outward zeal for the law. These were the ones to whom Jesus would be entrusted. He would be handed over. He would be tried. And he would stand trial. These were the ones that were presumed to speak for God. These men who believed that because they were born into the right families. Because they possessed the right knowledge. Because they could control their actions in such a way to convince the rest of the world that they were holy. They would presume to stand in the seat of God and condemn God's own son to death. Finding him guilty of blasphemy. This is where man-centeredness gets us. This is where religious exercise gets us. This is where hearts that are closed off to the conviction of sin, this is where it gets us. Standing and looking at our only chance of salvation in all the world. The son of God coming to lay down his life. Pleading with these people, would you turn from your sins, repent, and be saved? But no one could tell these men anything. Their power, their reputation, it would lead to their damnation. Dear friends, you're in a very, very difficult spot when no one can tell you anything. Because on that day, it will not matter if the son of the living God comes and stares you straight in your face. You will declare him to be a blasphemer. You will declare him to be a devil. And that is where they found Jesus Christ. So focused on religious exercise, so man-centered, they completely missed the Messiah standing before them. They deemed him worthy of death. But of course, the Jewish people, they could not carry out this execution. And so it was to the Romans, to the Gentiles, that he would be handed over. He would be handed over and then by the hand, by the hand of the Gentiles, the Romans, he would, he would have this sentence executed so that we can look backwards and we, we could see both the Jew and the Gentiles having a hand in the most egregious crime in the history of the world, the death of God's only begotten son. Verse 34, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. We sat in darkness on Friday night and we talked through this. We read through this account and I heard the sniffles. I saw the tissues that were left as people had been wiping their eyes. I know the weight that fell upon you as we read through that account, the trial that was an absolute mockery. It was a mockery against God. It was a mockery against his justice. It was a mockery of Jesus Christ as the prophet and king as they wrapped him in a robe. They fashioned a crown of thorns and they hammered it down upon his head as they spit in his face and they faked as they kneeled beneath him and acted as if they were worshiping him. Dear friends, they mocked him. They flogged him. They struck his face. They flayed his flesh with whips, with 
chunks of bone and steel within it, bleeding to the point of at least losing, right up to the point of losing consciousness. And then they killed him. Nailed to a cross, suffocating with his arms pinned above his head. And yet, dear friends, you must know that the physical pain was not what caused Jesus great dread. The burning lungs, the sting of a nail driven through his feet, that was nothing. That was nothing compared to the weight of sin. Jesus Christ, the one who knew no sin. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus Christ, the one who devoted his every word, his every thought, his every deed to the righteousness of God. Fulfilling not just the letter, but the very spirit of the law. He became the very thing that he hates most in the entire universe. Dear friends, you think you know the weight of your sin. You've not felt the full weight. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, receiving upon himself the weight of the sins of those that are his. The fullness. And then as he hung there on that cross, paying the price for us. The price that we are owed because of the, the rebellion in our heart. Because of our hatred. Because of our violence. Because of the fullness of our sins against the living God. As he hung there on that cross. As his physical life was fading. It pleased the Lord to crush him. Pouring out the full wrath of God, the infinite wrath due our sins, the full weight of hell without mercy, pouring this out upon his son until he had drunk down every last drop, turned over the cup and declared, it is finished. And then three days later, three days later, he rose again, just as he promised. He had told these men so that their joy would not fade in that time. He had told these men so they would understand exactly what awaited him, and they would recognize that what awaits on the other side of these dark days is glory. What awaits on the other side of these dark days is death no longer having sway over me or over you who are found in me. He told them this so that they would look forward to that Easter Sunday morning. We left here on Friday night. I, I'm not poo-pooing you for this, but we sat in this place and we felt the weight and the darkness and the sorrow of that passion. And we went out there and we stood up on that, around that cross and everyone stared at their belly button, feeling the weight of their sin that had driven Jesus Christ to the cross. And then as soon as I dismissed us, everybody laughed and asked, what's for supper? Dear friends, I don't poop you for this because you know that Easter comes. You're able to look backwards and know that that tomb will be empty. You're able to know that joy comes in the morning because Jesus Christ lives. And he tried to give these men this sense of hope by telling them, I'm coming back. He promised them. In three days, they should have been standing by the tomb just waiting. Okay, it's the third day. He's coming out. Get ready. Strike up the band. But instead they hid. And I don't look down on them. I would have done the same. Because the reality is while we left this place and we went off and we worried about what was for supper, while we laughed and we joked and we tried to figure out what, was, what our plans were for Saturday and for, for Easter Sunday, the reality is I don't live like the resurrection has happened. I don't live like Jesus Christ truly lives today. I don't live with the understanding that Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death and hell and Satan and the grave. I don't live in light of that any more than these men lived in light of that. I just don't act as sad as they did. That just may not be my nature. But the reality is I don't live like this. But dear friends, we come together today to celebrate this glorious truth. Every day, this truth. I called one of my Church of Christ friends and I said, hey, we we're talking about something else. And I said, hey, uh, Y'all do anything special for Easter? He said, yep, what we do every Sunday. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday because we get it right. 
said, you're right. Every day we live with the joy in our heart knowing that Jesus Christ lives. And every Sunday we come into this place and we celebrate the resurrection. Jesus Christ tried to bring these men to an understanding that though we die, yet he shall live. And that they, as they are found in him, though he, they die, yet they shall live. Because this is the very base. This is the, the basis, the foundation of their faith. The reality that on the third day, Jesus Christ would rise again. You cannot be truly Christian without clinging to this hope. You cannot be truly Christian without clinging to the assurance, to the hope, to the joy, to the beauty that Jesus Christ physically raised, personally raised, walked out of the grave. You must understand this. We don't just worship the idea of Jesus Christ. We don't just follow the teachings and the memory of Jesus Christ. We follow the person of Jesus Christ. We must look backwards and understand the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord as he walked. Not just his memory, not just some ambient hope, not just some thoughtful teachings. Jesus Christ, the God-man, the son of the most high God, the descendant of David, he rose and he walked again out of that grave and that is the one that we follow. He didn't die some martyr's death. He didn't leave, live some nice, pretty life and then die a martyr's death. And now we sit around today and we just ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Dear friends, he's still doing. He's still working. He's still acting. He is still holding every last molecule in the universe together. Were Jesus Christ to cease doing the things that he did? Were Jesus Christ to not walk out of the tomb in this way? The entire universe would fall into chaos. In fact, the entire universe would cease to exist. Jesus Christ is alive and he still does these things today. And so church, because of the centrality of the resurrection, because of the reality, just the crucial, crucial nature of the empty tomb, so many churches on Easter Sunday, they set out to present their very best argument. Just, just an apologetic case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I need you to understand that there were so many witnesses on that day. There were so many men and women, hundreds, who saw Jesus Christ who touched his hands, who ate with him, who heard his voice. They were all there, and they were all available. And there were millions more people there in Jerusalem for that Passover, perhaps as many as three million people there in that tiny town because of the Passover, many of them remaining all the way through Pentecost. And you need to understand that even with all these witnesses abounding, even with all these men that could look at him and say, I saw Jesus Christ. I saw the nail prints in his hand. I saw the spear mark in his side. I saw Jesus Christ and he lives today. Despite all of that testimony, there were so many that would have no interest in this whatsoever. There were so many that had no interest in following after him or believing in the power of the resurrection. So do I then believe that on some Easter Sunday morning 2,000 years later, I'm going to come and present some unknown information to you? That I'm going to be the one that cracks the case that somehow can call dead men to life by my own power, by my own ability? That I'm going to be able to preach to dead men and convince them of the reality of something so incredible, so powerful as the resurrection of Jesus Christ? No. Look, I, I'm thankful for men that are gifted in apologetics. I'm thankful for men and women who have done the tough work of taking such a glorious truth and putting it in contemporary terms. But Christian, if you believe, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if the people there in the day of Pentecost came to a belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is only by the working of God. 
when I read those words to you at the beginning of our service this morning, you heard me say, he is risen. And within your heart rose up the proclamation, amen, he is risen indeed. It is only by the working of the Spirit through his word. You need to understand this. This isn't worldly wisdom. This isn't sweet words. This isn't powerful intellect. This is the word of the living God moving by the spirit of the living God in the people of God to bring them to an assurance. As sure as the sky is blue. That you walked out of your house this morning and you looked up and you said, there's the sky, it's blue. There's nothing I could do to convince you of that. There's nothing I needed to do to convince you of that. God had given you eyes to see and you saw. If God has given you spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear, you will hear the truth that Jesus Christ lives and there will be nothing to be able to convince you otherwise. When I was a little boy, being a child of the 80s and the 90s, my parents bought me one of those dot pictures, those ones that has like dots and squiggles, and if you look at it, it like a 3D image comes out. Any of you remember these? They, they had bought me one, and it had a picture of a football player on it. And I'll never forget, my cousins were familiar with these kind of pictures, and so my, my dad gets me this gift, and I'm super excited, and they hang it up in my room, and all my cousins, they're looking at it like, dude, I see it. It's a, it's a football player. He's jumping up. He's catching up. I see nothing. It's dots and squiggles, man. But I'm starting to get mad. I'm starting to get sad. I'm staring at the picture. I'm crossing my eyes. I'm looking out of one eye. I'm spinning in a circle. I'm standing on my head. I'm doing everything I can to try to see this football player that everybody else seems to be so mesmerized with, and I can't do it. I can't do it. And so you know what I did? I started to lie to him and tell him that I saw it. Oh, I see it. It's good. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. I had no interest for that thing. I threw it in my closet. That's of no use to me. It's dots and squiggles. But then one day I walked into my closet. I clicked on the light. I wasn't thinking about the picture. I cast a glance over there and boom, a 3D image jumped out of me. It's a football player. And every time I looked at the picture, I couldn't see anything else but the football player popping out of me. And I wanted to go tell all my friends, look at it. Look at it. And I, I don't know. I don't see anything. It's dots and squiggles, man. I'm like, yeah, but you're not seeing it right. That's the gospel. That's the empty tomb. You're surrounded by men and women that say, amen, he lives today. He lives today. We follow a resurrected Savior. And you go, hey, I guess, man, sure, good for you. I'm just here because it's Easter. I don't know. I'm not going to be here next week, but I'm here because it's Easter. And there's nothing I can say to convince you otherwise. I can't get you to cross your eyes. I can't get you to stand on your head. I can't tell you some magical tricks. The God of the universe is either going to give you eyes to see or he's not. You're either going to see the glory of the resurrection or you're not. And dear friends, once you see it, you won't see anything else. Everywhere you look, you'll see your resurrected Savior. Not just a memory. Not just some swell words. Not just some fortune cookie theology, a living, breathing Savior. I'm sorry I said some of you are only here on Sunday, on Easter Sunday. I'm glad you're here. I'm not seeking to make you embarrassed. Dear friends, I pray this is the point where you see him. Pray that God would bring you into this place on this side. I don't care why you're here. I don't care if you're here for the coffee. I don't care if you're here for the donuts. I don't care if you're here just because you got an Easter dress and you need to show it off. Dear friends, I pray that today you would come into this place and you would see the face of the living God and you would never be able to see anything else. Wild horses wouldn't be able to drag you away. But because of that, I need to confess to you people that I have failed you. I've paid so much attention to the cross. And dear friends, the cross is Everything. I've paid so much attention to the cross in the last two and a half years, and, and, I, and I do believe rightfully so, because there are so many churches, there are so many pastors, they've taken the cross of Jesus Christ, and they've made it into just nothing more than a grand gesture. 
They've sought to take the cross of Jesus Christ and they've made it into something so man-centered that it has lost any hope of power. They've taken the cross of Jesus Christ and they've made it into nothing more than God's show of the greatness of man. The intrinsic value and worth of man. So many pastors, they have refused to preach the reality that it is our sin that made that cross necessary. The reality that there was an infinite wrath that was due us because of the filth, because of the depravity of our own hearts. They have failed to look to the cross of Jesus Christ and make it what it's really about, the glory of God. As God showed us his justice in his dealing with sin, and at the same time he showed us his mercy in the justification of sinners. So I've focused for so long on trying to show you this. So much zeal do I have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much zeal do I have for his cross. So much of a burning desire do I have in my heart to bring you to a clear understanding of the atonement that I've failed to show you the beauty of the empty tomb. I'm so terrified that I may have robbed some of you of that hope, that joy that comes with the reality that Jesus Christ lives. So that's my desire for us this Easter Sunday morning. By the way, that was my intro. That's why people don't come back. got to give you this sense of joy I can't ask you to see something that I'm not holding before your face and guys I know I know that you know that Jesus Christ lives I know that you know that the tomb was empty but I want to show you the reason for that joy I want to show you the reason that you can walk out of this place and punch the devil right square in his mouth I want to show you the reason why cancer and divorce and brokenness and anything else that this world would throw your way this week, while you can stare at dead in his face, and you can say, my Savior lives, and this is why it matters. So firstly, I pray that, pray that you would leave this place with, as, as Peter says, that you would leave this place just ready at all times to provide an answer for the hope that is within you. And I pray that you see how that hope begins with that empty tomb and the assurance of the identity of Jesus Christ. What God did in raising his son from the dead is he gave us an absolute assurance. There was, there was this question that went throughout Jesus' ministry. You'll remember that after he calmed that ferocious storm out of the sea, it was Peter who said, what kind of man is this that wind and waves would obey him? He would go on to answer his own question after years of seeing Jesus work, after raising the dead, after healing the sick, after casting out the demons. It was he that would stand before him and say, surely you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. Again, this was the work of God. He had brought Peter's eyes to see in Jesus Christ the glory. He had brought his eyes to see in Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Messiah that he'd waited for. That's why Jesus replied to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But when Jesus was dragged away, when he was beaten, when he was mocked, when he was tried, when he was killed, and as he was buried in that tomb, they had to have had questions. How can the Son of God die? How can the Son of God stay dead these had to have been all the doubts that were running through their mind on that saturday that friday night into that saturday and you need to know dear friends that with the resurrection of jesus christ god confirmed that he is who he says he is that with the resurrection of jesus christ all the promises that he has made destroy this temple and in three days i will build it again i have the right to lay down my life and i have the authority to raise it back up again i am the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. God vindicated his Son on that glorious Easter morning as he raised him from the dead and he said, death cannot hold my Son. You see, 
Romans 1. Paul is writing to the, writing to the church in Rome, obviously. And, and may I just encourage you, don't skip over. Don't skip over the introductions to the epistles. There is so much good and deep and rich theology just in those opening sentences. I get in a rush sometimes and I read through the introductions. There's a reason why Paul doesn't just start with, Dear Rome. There is so much richness in that as he sets the tone for this glorious work that he hands before them. But listen to how it begins. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul is greeting those that are in Rome, those that are called the saints, those that are loved by God. He identifies himself as an apostle, apostle for the sake of Jesus Christ, the one who has descended from David according to the flesh. Jesus Christ coming to become a man, descending then from the line of David. This is an easy thing to prove. Just look back through the lineage, look back through the family tree, look back through the earthly genealogies that we've been provided, and you see that Jesus in Christ is in fact the one that has come from the line of David, just like the scriptures promised. The Messiah the Christ, the anointed one, the eternal king that would reign forever. He was promised to come from the line of David. Jesus came and he became a descendant of David. This is the incarnation. This is the story of Christmas. He descended from David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the son of God. Declared. He did not become the son of God. He was declared to be the son of God. He had always been the son of God. There was never a time when the son was not. You want to know what was happening in eternity past? It was the triune God enjoying his holy presence. It was the three-person God enjoying each other's perfect fellowship in love. This was a picture of what happened in eternity past. The son has always been, but at the appointed time, it was affirmed. It was declared. It was confirmed for those that were there. It was revealed. This word for declared, horizo, it has the idea of a surveyor marking his land. I have the picture of a man that's driving a stake into the ground or that is planting in his flag, and he's saying this. This is my truth. This is the truth that Jesus Christ is and has always been the Son of God. But listen to how he announces it. Jesus Christ our Lord was declared to be the Son of God by power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. At the baptism of Jesus Christ, you remember that voice that cried down from heaven, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And yet he continued to go on looking just like any other man. No beauty that we would desire him. No majesty that we would behold him. His divinity, his godness, veiled in human flesh. Philippians talks about the reality that he had emptied himself. He had not lost any of his godness. The very definition of what it means to be God is to continue to be God. God cannot change. He cannot increase. He cannot decrease. What Jesus Christ did in coming to be man was he took upon himself flesh. He let loose of his right to exercise his own divinity and to reveal to the world the glory that was always his. It was veiled beneath human flesh. Now, there would be men that would see at times we think about men like John the Baptist, that even from within his mother's womb was turning a flip. Old man like Simeon, a widow like Anna. There was also people that were given physical pictures of this. You think about Peter and James and John going up the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus pulled back the veil and he revealed the glory that had always been his. But on that glorious Easter morning, after the Friday of darkness, after a Saturday of death, of, of doubt and fear, as Jesus Christ walked out of that grave, God was declaring in power, this is my son. Behold him as he has always been. No longer meek, no longer frail, no longer veiled. A glorious spiritual body fitted for heaven. 
He affirmed everything that Jesus had said about himself. He confirmed his identity for all the world to see. He says, this is my son. The divinity that has always been his. The power that has always been his. The glory that has always been his. Now look and behold. We don't know exactly what that looked like. Again, we know that it was a physical body. We know that it was the same body that was sown in weakness. That was raised in power. Same body, same mind, same soul, and yet different. Different enough that Jesus had to speak to those around him at times to reveal who he was, that they could see him, and they weren't completely clear who he was until he spoke, until he gave a word, until he opened their eyes to recognize. The same Jesus, there was great continuity, and yet there were differences in this glorious body, in this powerful body, in this spiritual body that he had. This wasn't Lazarus, this wasn't Jairus' daughter. They were raised to go back to living the same kind of life because they would continue to decay. They would continue to get sick, and someday they too would die. And yet Jesus Christ, having walked through that tomb and come out the other side into glory, he would never again die. This glorious promise is the first fruits among all creation. Jesus Christ, our brother, as we're joined together with him in this, he gives us a picture of what we too will be, back, be like when we walk through death. When that glorious day comes that Jesus Christ returns and our bodies rise again, no longer perishable but imperishable, no longer weak, no longer fleshly, but glorious. Bodies fitted for the new heaven and the new earth. Bodies fitted to be in the presence of the living God. No longer stained by sin. No longer stained by weakness. No longer stained by frailty. This is the picture that God revealed in Jesus Christ. The glory that had always been his was now seen in his humanity. So the people around him, they could touch his hands. They could wash as he ate fish. And yet he was different. This is what God affirmed at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That death would no longer have any sway over him. And as a result, death would no longer have any sway over us. He affirmed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But in addition to that, he affirmed for us that our sins had been forgiven. We talked on, I guess it was Thursday, we talked about the Passover on Thursday and the reality that what God had called his people to do was to take the blood of the lamb and to paint it on the doorpost and on the lentils. And I can imagine the children looking at the father and saying, how in the world can you believe this blood's going to work? You're telling me there's an angel out there demanding men's lives and you're telling me our best defense is to smear some blood on the door? There had to have been so many there in Jesus' day and there had to be so many of you here in this room today to say, how can you tell me that the blood of Jesus Christ works? I mean, it's a cool idea. We sing songs about it. But how can you tell me that the death of a man 2,000 years ago is enough to guarantee that my sins have been forgiven? How can you tell me that the death of a man 2,000 years ago is enough to make me right with God? Do you know the things I've done? Do you know the violence I've committed? Do you know the hatred that I've harbored in my heart? How in the world can you tell me that the death of a man 2,000 years ago that I didn't even know was going to account for all this? But if we continue on in the book of Romans, we look at Romans 4, beginning in verse 23, it says this. But the words, let me back up, let me tell you what's happening here. So Paul is unfolding just the beauty of the power and the majesty of faith, of true repentant faith. And he's talking about Abraham and how his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And then he goes on to say this, Romans 4, 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. Talking about faith being credited to us as righteousness, just as with Abraham, that faith credited to us as righteousness for him who believes in Jesus Christ our Lord, for Jesus Christ was delivered for our trespasses. That's what I've spent the last two and a half years talking about. The reality that it was for our sin, 
It was for our rebellion, it was for our iniquity that Jesus Christ died, but he was raised for our justification. Justification, that beautiful reality that in Christ Jesus, his perfect righteousness, his infinitely holy and worthy life, that those who have placed their faith in him, that will be credited to them, accounted to them, that God would look upon us and he would see us, he would see in us the perfect righteousness of his son, declaring us righteous. Not just well wishes, but our standing before God is righteous. The justification, this is so key, because man cannot be right with God unless he is perfectly and infinitely and unendingly righteous. You cannot enjoy the blessed presence of God unless you are completely and wholly righteous. A righteousness which only Jesus Christ can affirm, which only Jesus Christ can accomplish. And so, what Paul is saying here is that at the cross of Jesus Christ, he took that infinitely worthy life. He that had known no sin, he that had been a perfectly righteous, obedient son from the very beginning to his very last breath, fulfilling everything that God would demand, not just avoiding sin, but walking in perfect righteousness. No sins of omission, no sins of commission. That he took that perfectly worthy life, the only kind of life which God can bless, and he laid it down at the cross, extending to those of us that would trust in him this same perfect righteousness. All of that, all of that. Your justification, your right standing with God, it was accomplished by the perfect life and the atoning death of Jesus Christ, but it was confirmed by the empty tomb. How can you know for sure that Jesus was perfectly righteous? How can you know for sure that God received his payment for your sin? How can you know for sure that you have a standing, a hope before God? I pray that you've thought this through. I pray that if someone would come up to you on the street tomorrow and they'd say, how do you have any hope in your life? Look around you at your world. Look around you at the things that you've done. How can you believe that you're right with God? How can you believe that God loves you? How can you believe that you've been forgiven of your sin? How can you possibly believe that you're found righteous before God? I pray that you don't point back to some event in your life. I pray that you don't point back to some membership at a church. I pray that you don't point back to some uh, prayer that you once offered. I pray that you don't even point to the good works that come as an outflowing of your new birth. I pray that you don't even point back to the things that God has done through you as a result of this new creation that he has made you to be. All those are evidences. All of those are signs. All of those are the workings of God and those that are truly his, but they are not the basis. I pray that if someone would walk up to you and say, how do you know that you have been saved? How do you know that your sins have been forgiven? How on earth can you walk around in this world with any kind of hope whatsoever? I pray that you point back to the cross 2,000 years ago and you point next to it to the empty grave and you say because 2,000 years ago my Savior died but he is not dead. You point back to the empty tomb and you say when my God declared that it is finished, it was finished. That in raising his son from the dead, he affirmed he is my son. He affirmed that he is perfectly righteous, that Jesus Christ didn't die for his own sins for if he had, he would have remained dead. Did he affirm that death could not hold him there because of his infinite righteousness? If I had died, I would have to remain dead. If all we were dealing with here was my own death, was my own self-sacrifice, I would have to pay for those sins for all eternity. At the end of 10,000 years, I'd be no closer to the end than when I'd first begun. I would suffer the torment of hell without any reprieve whatsoever, not ticking off my debt. My debt is infinite. It's only the infinitely worthy Son of God, his perfectly righteous life, that could atone for this. And God proved it by raising him from the dead. That death couldn't hold him because he had no sin. That death couldn't hold him because there was no more payment done. That there was no more condemnation. That there was no more wrath. That there was no more works. That we are no more under the law. That the keys of hell and death and Hades belonged in the hand of Jesus Christ. And he said, they can't hold me. 
so that everyone that is found in him, Paul goes on to talk about in Romans 6, 5, he says that those of us that are with him in faith, we are joined with him in a life like his. We are joined with him in a death like his. We are joined with him in a resurrection like his. I don't know how this works. I've got no clue how this works. There's a lot of things that I understand about the Bible. I don't understand this one. And yet how somehow by faith, by an absolute act of mercy and grace by God, he has brought you by faith to be joined with Jesus Christ so that his perfect life counts for you. So that his atoning death counts for you. And so that his powerful resurrection counts for you. That's the basis for your hope. Nothing else. I pray that you see the hope that is meant to come in this. I don't think that I have time to get to it, but we read in 1 Peter, again, another introduction. In 1 Peter 3, going down through verse 9, we see this picture about this living hope that is born in us. As we look to Jesus Christ, this living hope that comes through the resurrection. And we look at a man like Peter that fled from Jesus Christ. A man who was acquainted with sorrows and grief and trouble and doubt and sin and failure. How he stands before the world and he says, I have a living hope in me because Jesus Christ lives. Because of the resurrection. Because I've seen him walking once out of that, out of that grave. Because of that, I stand here with a hope, though all this trouble lays ahead. He, this is why this man named Peter could be in a prison, beaten, locked up in prison, singing songs of praise to the living God because he knows this world has nothing it can throw at me that my Savior has not overcome. This world has nothing that it can throw at me that I cannot overcome in Christ Jesus. That he knows the words of Ephesians 2, that even now somehow, joined with Jesus Christ, I am already seated in heaven. Do you understand that? In Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, in his ascension, in your union with him, you are already seated in heaven. Your heinies sit in First Baptist Church of Crosby, but your spirit somehow joined with Christ. You're in heaven. That's the basis for your hope. And y'all don't seem jacked up about it, but I am. Because I walk through this earth and I see all my failures. I see all my sin. I see all my hatred. Can I tell you something? I had, before I got up on this stage to preach just now, in the middle of the third song, I had to circle around and go back to Leanne Lee and confess sin. Not because she's a priest or anything. I just needed to confess somebody. I knew it would freak my wife out, so I said, well, Leanne can handle it. She's tough. I am standing over here after a holy week, after leading you people to the Lord's table, after sitting under the weight of the passion reading, as carrying a nail out to the cross is a confession of my sin. Preparing hours upon hours of wrestling with the blessed word of God. Coming into this place and seeing your joyful faces. And you said, he is risen. He is risen indeed. I stand over here and I sing these songs of praise to the living God. And my heart was wretched. My heart was sinful. My heart was ugly. The point that I had to go back and grab her and say, I got to say this to somebody. I've already confessed it to God, now I'm going to confess it to you, I guess. That you can sit there and pray for me as I try to handle the word of God rightly, that he wouldn't strike me dead. And yet in the middle of all that, I find incredible hope. Not a dead hope, a living hope, because Jesus Christ lives. My hope is not found in my performance. My hope is not found in my estimation of myself. My hope is not found in my own obedience. My hope is found in the resurrected Jesus Christ and the fact that he lives. The fact that I believe what the Holy Scriptures say, they say, if I would place my faith in him, if I would repent of my sin, that I too am joined with him in heaven now. That Jesus Christ reigns now. And that the resurrection, I shall reign with him. 
that when I am raised from the dead in that glorious day, when that trumpet sounds and my body raises, I will have a glory that is a glorious body like his, a reflection of his glory. And then all of that, all of the glory, all of the power, all of the gifts, they'll all be thrown back at his feet. Saying, Jesus Christ, this is all of you. You alone are worthy. And I praise God that in the middle of this, in the middle of turmoil and suffering and strife and my own failure and my own sin and my own hardness, in the middle of all this, that I could stand rock solid on the living hope of Jesus Christ because he lives. Dear friends, forgive me for not telling you this sooner. Forgive me for beating you about the head and neck about your sin. It's because I'm so sinful. Because I hate my sin so badly. But dear friends, you've got to know the hope that's on the other side of that. That hope cannot be found until you recognize your depravity. That hope cannot be, cannot be seen while you continue to hold on to your reputation, to your refusal to cry out, your insistence that you stand on your own weight. You will not find that hope until you throw yourselves upon the feet of Jesus Christ. You say, Jesus Christ, you are my only hope. My heart is wretched. My heart is dirty. My heart is filthy. Nothing comes forth from me but iniquity. And yet I throw myself on you because I trust that you will keep your promise. I trust that that promise has been confirmed by the fact that you walked out of that grave. I trust that that promise has been confirmed because Jesus Christ, you walked and you lived and you died and you rose again. And today you reign from heaven. That is the basis of my hope and nothing else. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the living hope that is found in your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that that hope is not found in how we feel. We thank you that that hope is not found in how we perform. We thank you that that hope is found in nothing other than the empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, would you bring us to the end of ourselves? Would you wreck us? Father, death is not a pretty thing. Death is not a painless thing, but oh, how there's glory on the backside. So, Father, we pray today, if there is one here, myself included, if we are deceived, if we somehow have been going through the motions and convincing ourselves that we have truly repented and believed, and that may not be true, then, Father, we pray that you bring us to a point where we cannot help it but to cry out to you, Father, God, take this life. I am done with this life. I hand it to you, and in the name of Jesus Christ, I trust that because of this, I may live. Father, above all, we seek to bring you glory. We pray that you would be glorified by the words that we sing now. Not only the words of our lips, but the meditations of our heart. For all these things we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.